This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Mäkelä. Before jumping into today's episode, I wanted to take a short time for the first time to address you, the listeners, directly. It has been two months since I published On Humans, and since then a beautiful number of you from 78 countries have tuned in. This has been a real joy to witness. But it would be an even greater joy to hear from some of you directly. What have you enjoyed most? Have I screwed up something? And what kind of topics would you like to see covered in the future? Feel free to email me with an answer to these or any other similar questions at makela.ilary at outlook.com or use the podcast website to drop me a line. I promise to respond to every message I receive. They said it has happened that a listener has messaged me with an invalid email in the submission form, which naturally makes the response impossible. So if you did reach out but did not hear back, then please just do it again and double check your address. But whether you decide to email or not, please know that I appreciate your attention greatly and will do my best to serve it well now and in the future. So thank you, as always, for listening. Let's go to today's show. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Gregory Burns. The first half of our discussion was published separately in episode number four. Don't worry if you haven't listened to that, the topics are independent of each other. This one is about animal neuroscience. And while being mainly about dogs, our discussion goes much deeper than the peculiarities of these lovely canines. Doing animal neuroscience, Burns has had to confront the very question about how much can we know about what it's like to be another animal. Is attributing human-like emotions to non-human animals a dangerous form of anthropomorphism? Or is the opposite more dangerous? Is it overly human-centric to assume that we and only we can feel anger, rage, joy and love? And if we do assume that non-human animals can have rich emotional lives, then how do we live with all the contradictions that emerge from the way we treat different animals? Like my earlier episode with Burns, this is a discussion with few definite answers, but many interesting explorations. This said, there is, for the first time, also an actual recommendation, which you will hear if you listen to the show to the very end after the conversation. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy the conversation, and I bring to you... Gregory Burns. Do you have a dog? I don't. But I would like to. My grandfather just passed away this year, and he, together with my grandmother, who passed away over a decade ago, they had wonderful dogs that were my my childhood dogs. Yeah, what kind of dogs? Uh, Labradors. Great playmates. Mm. You have quite a few, right? I do. We just actually lost one this weekend, so we're. Down to three, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Who was it? Well, this was this was a recent addition since I moved to the farm. This was a dog who wandered onto the farm about six months ago. I named her Ripple after the Grateful Dead song. A uh, very sweet dog, but we also called her the tumor with a dog attached to it. Oh, I see. Because she had this, this softball-sized tumor on her leg. And so we knew she did not have much time left on earth and so we just gave her a nice home so she passed on but let's not dwell let's not dwell on on dead dogs well we will because i want to ask you about newton you start your book how do dogs love us with a story about your late dog newton yes which started a long long pioneering project in animal neuroscience would you like to tell the story one more time i'm sure you told it many times Sure. I mean, Newton, Newton was a pug. He was, he was the first dog that my wife and I got. 
essentially as adults. So after, after I got out of training and, you know, we finally, you know, we're settled enough and, you know, had a place with a yard and big enough, you know, we got Newton and that was back in the nineties, I guess. So he was my first dog as an adult. Of course I grew up with dogs. So I have like you, like childhood memories of, of those dogs, also retrievers. So over the years, Newton lived to be almost 15. I was very attached to him. And, and so when he passed away, I grieved him. Um, you know, pet grief is, is real and in many ways more intense than we grieve for humans. I began to wonder whether, you know, what his feelings were toward me. Was this relationship I had with him for 15 years, was that entirely based on food, the fact that I fed him and gave him treats, or was there something reciprocated in the sense that he had anything close to the feelings that I had for him? And for lack of a better word, call it love. And so that that was the beginning of what then I called the dog project. There is, a, I guess, two kinds of philosophical traditions that pushed against you. First, there was the, the Cartesian idea. I'm sure René Descartes gets a lot of crap nowadays for, for everything. I'm sure he's not the only one, but he, he, he did claim that the dogs are or not or that all non-human animals are, are automatons, right. some kind of you know, lifeless, uh, selfless, uh, emotionless, feelingless machines. Then there is another very different philosophical tradition that pushed against you, which relates to Thomas Nagel's famous paper, what is, what is it like to be a bat? Yes. Where Nagel argues that we cannot know. Nagel, I, I don't think is Cartesian at all. I think he very explicitly believes that there is something that it is like to be a bat. There are feelings, there, are, there is a, a bat consciousness, but that we cannot know about it by the means right. of neuroscience, at least. Right. That no matter what we know about bat physiology, we won't know what it's like to be a bat in the same sense as a colorblind person might know a lot about color vision, but they don't know what it's like to see red. Right. And then in between those two, of course, is Jeremy Bentham, who said that the question wasn't whether animals can feel pain, but can they suffer? Well, not, not whether animals can think, but whether they can suffer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, before we get into your research, I could, can you help me get a charitable view on the more moderate uh, versions of not quite a Cartesian opinion, but there are people who seem to be still quite skeptical about animal emotions, animal feelings, who say that almost like, you know, it's inherently problematic to assume that animals have emotions because it's anthropomorphizing or saying that emotions are so related to language that animals without human style language couldn't have them. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too sentimental, but you know, having played with dogs when I was young, it's pretty clear that they have some feelings, even if they wouldn't have our feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Humans are not a paragon of consistency to begin with. So, uh, you know, we, I think most people, anyone who's lived with a dog or a cat, which is probably the majority of people, um, at least the majority of people listening to this. Yeah. I mean, after I started publishing on, on dog neuroscience, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the reaction I got was, well, duh, you know, yeah. obviously, yeah. you know, obviously yeah. my dog loves me. Yeah. I didn't need an MRI to know that. Yes. So, so there's this common sense feeling that that's, that there's some emotions going on there, but, but then of course we eat animals. Most people do. 
And so how are you to jibe those two um, views of animals? Is there something special about dogs um, that's different than, say, a cow? In my view, there isn't. And now I, I say that with some authority as, as someone who now has a small herd of cows. But, you know, if, if you go back to Darwin, Darwin, you know, in his, in his book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, very clearly thought that emotions were also subject to evolutionary pressures. And there exists this continuum um, from humans into all animals that human emotions just didn't arrive de novo. They came from something else, right? Yeah. Let's get back to the point about cows. I think it raises, and, and species and more generally, it raises a lot of questions, but focusing first on, what, uh, on the data. So a lot of the, as you said, the responses were like, well, duh, of course, <laughs> my dogs love us. Uh, what was the data that they were responding to? Well, one of the things that stuck with me was, do I remember this correctly, that after this long and very difficult training program of getting dogs to be in these MRI machines voluntarily, which was, which was great. One of these things that you found was that when one of your dogs was in the scanner and dog being able to, to get a whiff of, of, of their owners or your wife's uh, smell got a strong reward response to this. Was that, was that correct? That's right. That's right. And then later on, we did kind of, I think, more fine-tuned studies where, where we examined the reward response to the prospect of food versus the prospect of, of verbal praise. Again, focusing on the reward system and found that the majority, roughly three-quarters of the dogs that we studied, had equal responses to the prospect of praise. And some even had a greater prospect uh, uh, to that, greater response to that. Yeah. So. It wasn't just the food. Yeah. Now we get we get back to the anthropomorphizing problem and in interpreting that. Does that mean that they are f feeling love? It's like, well, no, obviously not. Um, but but this brings up kind of where I wanted to go back to my my bone to pick with Nagel, no pun intended. Um, so Nagel's argument was essentially that that an animal's physiology is is so different than the humans that we can't possibly know what it's going to be like to experience it being in their bodies right um and therefore we can't say anything about what their emotions are if we can't even know what it's like for them to perceive the world i disagree with that i think actually we have a pretty good idea of what it's like to be many animals and this is for two reasons one is evolutionary continuity especially among mammals right so a bat is a mammal uh as are dogs uh, we, we share a common evolutionary history that means that our brains are fairly similar. They're not that different. All the same basic structures are there. Even our bodies are similar in many ways, right? We all have four limbs. We, everyone essentially has five digits, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, the physiology is the same. We're mammals, so we bear live young. All these similarities mean that there are far more things in common than different, even with a bat. So, so yes, I think we actually can have a pretty good idea of what it's like to be a bat. And um, there are people who put on wingsuits that look like bats, right? And then they jump off mountains and buildings and they go soaring about. And to me, those look like human bats. And so those people 
have a pretty good idea of what it's like to fly. I don't, but but somebody does. So again, it comes back to my ideas of continuity, that there are more similarities than differences. Things like, okay, well, they, they have sonar. Okay. Yeah. Well, so do some people. Some people have, you know, especially blind people have the ability to construct an image of, of the room that they're in just by the sounds. Yeah. Okay? These yeah. are these are this is not fundamentally different than what bats are doing i guess in favor of of nagel i don't think that he would i don't have you ever talked with him no no because i don't know how deeply he would actually disagree with these things that the reason i say that is that first of all the point of if humans behave like bats or if we use echolocation we will know what it's like to be echolocation i don't think that is so relevant because he wasn't saying that it wasn't about bats fundamentally it was about the question of what can physiology tell us about experience right and secondly if i i'm, I'm not saying this would be nagel's response but it what might be nagel's response was that he wasn't trying to, I think, as such, to prevent people like you getting funding, which he has, I think, well, perhaps <laughs> unintentionally. Um, yeah. But what he was trying to do was to say that when people say that consciousness equals the brain or um, the mind equals the brain, they don't, we don't really even know what that would mean. I mean, he, in that paper, he says that saying that the mind is the same as the brain is like telling an ancient Greek that energy and matter are the same thing. You know, like they just don't have the, the apparatus to really even understand that. And one of the ways that he was trying to get to that intuition was that if we would do know nothing about the internal life of something, just looking at the objective physiology wouldn't be able to get us there. And what you're doing, I think, is using this like well, we know what it's like to be in love. And when we are in love, our chordate nucleus or whatever has this strong reward response. Therefore, we can guess pretty well that the same is happening with dogs because they, there is this what you call functional homology. So I, I, I could see there being a place of being kind of metaphysically a Nagelian while practically yeah. a, a Burnsian <laughs> about right. this issue, if you see what I'm saying. I do. And it... it so philosophers have a word that that uh, that if anyone uses, I pretty much get up out of and I, I leave the room. And that's qualia. Yes, it's a term I despise um, <laughs> because it's a term that philosophers hide behind. You know, it's like okay, well, you can't know what you know. My experience of the color red is is it the same as yours? I really dislike that term because it's not. You know, it's hiding. Uh, for a reasonable question that I believe that we can probably approach answers to scientifically and and in some cases like the perception of color um, in a reductionist way, to be honest. Um, you know, it's not, visual perception is probably the thing that we know the best about the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, leaving Nagel aside, let's get back to the dogs for a moment. So I've talked with Helen Fisher about the neuro biology of love in humans. And I think that when she and her team scanned people in love, looking at their partners, I think that the areas lighting up were pretty much the same <laughs> as the right. areas lighting up in, in your dogs when they were, when they were, was it, was it, whether it was smelling or, or looking at or, or getting praise from their, from their owners. So as you said earlier, it doesn't really, it doesn't mean that 
they are in love, there are other things that can can also trigger the same response, but it probably tells us something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How familiar are you with Jak Panksepp's work? I mean, you mentioned his work in the book because he, he's very much in the camp of like, there are these universal, at least in mammals, these emotions that run through that, you know, you can find them in the brain. Uh, yeah. And then there are folks like Lisa Fadlon Barrett, who seems to completely disagree. And it's quite difficult to get through that literature. I, my intuition, as I probably already said, is more on the concept camp about this. Um, but it is just an intuition. I mean, who am I to tell? Well, can you help yeah. me a little bit? How, how do I, what do you make when you have people, two people who are so well informed, who've done so many convincing studies and they just say the complete opposite things? I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I am I am very familiar with Panksepp's work, um, and he was he was quite polarizing through his career, um, and and uh, probably the majority of neuroscientists and psychologists just disagreed with him. And and I think he was probably marginalized more than he should have been for a variety of reasons. Why? Why? The, the... Part of it was his personality, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you know, he he was kind of pugnacious himself, and what. Hmm you know, willing to pick fights. And so he was reductionist in the extreme, right? So, you know, his, his, his view of animal emotions was literally, okay, there's this circuit in the rat's brain that is associated with rage. And then there's this other circuit that is associated with maternal behavior and, and that's what it is. Um, and then you, you mentioned Lisa Barrett, you know, she basically says, well, it all depends on language. You can't have happiness if you don't have a word for it you know and then babies uh, could be happy exactly right um which is for me it's a pretty serious point i mean it, the, the word loses a lot of its meaning if we cannot meaningfully say yeah. that a baby could be happy right so my view of this i mean the, the i think the word i think language is is a bit of a red herring in much of these debates because um you know, I have emotions for which I use words, but they're not really, they're not very good descriptors of how I feel. Yeah. Um, they're short, yeah. they're shorthands for it. Um, you know, so I might have an anxiety for a very specific thing that's different than an anxiety that I have for something else. So for example, anxiety I might feel in a social situation is distinct from something else um that might cause me to be anxious and i do not i don't really have the right words to describe it but i can recognize the signature inside myself as distinct states um without having the words for them yeah and i think i think that's probably true of all animals they, they might not they don't necessarily have exactly the same emotions that we do because so many of our emotions are related to our sociocultural embedding, right? Uh, which is going to be different. But a dog or any animal is going to have a, a suite of emotions that they recognize to the extent that they're self-conscious and self-aware as that thing, hmm. even though they don't have the words for it. Yeah, I, and this is why in our earlier discussion, I mentioned... You asked me about Finnish word for emotion and feeling, and I and I said that I find it helpful in the Finnish language that you don't have a specific word for emotion, except for the imported emotion, literally, emotio, which nobody uses. Um, because what happens here sometimes is that people are like, oh, well, yeah, you can have feelings, of course, without language, but they only become emotions when you, when you have a, a linguistic label on it. But then that just... It, 
it feels a little artificial to me and, right. and almost right. circular. I mean, if you, if that's how you define emotions, well, obviously you're always going to find that answer about it, but. Well, only one small camp defines emotions that way presently. Hmm. What's the camp just for curiosity when you say one, one camp? Well, the Lisa, the Lisa Barrett camp. <laughs> well, so you would say that's a small camp? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But okay. So one last point on emotions, I think the way to think about emotions is, is okay. They're not a reflex. So it's useful to distinguish, well, what's a reflex. So a reflex is a change that happens in the body that causes a predefined behavioral action or motor response. Whereas an emotion is not that specific. It's, it's a state change that kind of generally orients you to do some types of things, but it's not a one for one. Yeah. So when you're hungry, and I actually would put hunger as an emotion. Um, I, I think it meets many of the same requirements and it's mm. helpful to, for this discussion, right? So when you're hungry, that kind of orients you to seek food, but it's not, it doesn't trigger a program for that. Yeah. It just reorients your priorities. Yeah. It, it, it prepares you <laughs> to, to be motivated and ready to seek food. The hunger is an interesting addition because um, one of the things I, I mean, you're a pioneer in using fMRI on, um, on animals, especially animals, what they're by their own, own choice, so to speak, who have a chance right. of just leaving and who are not sedated. But I don't know if this was the first study, but the very, a, a very early study that I learned from your book was done with actually not a mammal, but a bird in the nineties, there was this PET scan. That was done with, was it with crows yeah. who had been taken from the wild and then reared. And there were so many layers. It was just a fascinating study because there were so many layers on this. I guess the two main layers, one of them was to test whether crows recognize faces well. <laughs> and they did because the, the people who took them had one kind of masks when they kind of abducted them, so to speak, and another kind of mask when they were taking right. care of them in the, in the bird sanctuary or the lab or whatever it was. And, and first of all, so then when shown this mask, was it correct that the crows, they responded very differently to, to, to these masks. So they clearly had a, a, a pretty good facial perception, but what was, yes. what was the, the second layer was that was really fascinating was that they had in these PET scans, which does anybody use PET scans by the way anymore? Or is it a completely outdated technology? Only for things like, like you're talking about. Okay. Because yeah. it's, it's a pretty wide one. You just read about it. It's like radioactive substance to the blood and then antimatter forming yeah. positrons. I mean, it sells pretty wide. You know? there's, there's clinical uses of it, uh, okay. primarily, you know, uh, for, for cancer okay. uh, treatment. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, back to the study. So the, so the first level was, okay, crows, they recognize faces pretty well. So they're clearly tuned faces in a way that they're not tuned to some other objects. But then secondly, they had... Uh, in these PET scans, things that by analogy to, I don't know if it was human brains or to other bird brains or whatever, but yeah, this looks like there's a fear response towards these faces that they are, that the abductors <laughs> used. And then there was this, this attachment uh, or, or, or some kind of positive reward attachment reaction to, to the faces that were taking care of them. Am I paraphrasing it correctly? Yeah, I, I believe so. And that was a fascinating study in, in that it was in such an early days. I mean, so like what, like two decades before, before the dog project right. started. And that for me was, well, again, whatever lang whatever, what language we want to use is, I guess, our, our choice, but that's a pretty clear indication that 
it makes sense. <laughs> you know, these right. crows don't like a face that just took them out of the wild, but they like the face that is now taking care of them. And, and yeah, we need some language to talk about that if we want to have any respect for the crow. Right. So this kind of gets back to where we started this conversation, which is how are humans supposed to use this information? One, you know, one possibility is is become a vegan and don't consume any animal products. I'm not vegan or even really vegetarian. I I am, I would call myself a meat minimizer, or as some people would call it, reducitarian. And you know, my 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 primary issue with with veganism and vegetarianism is uh, the kind of almost religious um, ascetic element to it where you know if you if you consume one animal product then does that mean you're not a vegan anymore right it's it's so absolute in many people's minds that it becomes untenable and to me the issue then is more one of animal welfare which is okay how do we treat animals if even if we're going to eat them you know certainly in the US you know most cattle end up on feedlots um, before they're slaughtered. And that's, you know, that's horrible. Um, and, and it's something that I've certainly gained a, a much more nuanced appreciation for since moving to the country and living on a farm. Mm. Um, last week, I actually just, I spent several days uh, on a cattle farm here uh, in South Georgia where, you know, they use the cattle to regenerate the land, um, recycle carbon. Ultimately, you know, they're turned into steak and hamburger. Um, and it's, it's done as humanely as possible. Hmm. Although they're very upfront. It's like, you know, we would be disingenuous to say that there's no pain because we can't say that. Um, And so these are hard questions. I don't have the answer to that, but I do know, you know, that there are better, there there are better ways to do this and there are worse ways to do it. Yeah. I don't want to take a stance on veganism or vegetarianism here as such, but one of the, points you mentioned earlier is this question of, well, why are, are, is there anything special about a dog? Your response was, well, not necessarily. I mean, and you say this as a, as a dog lover, but there's two questions. One is some people would say that, yes, there is. Well, because... let me, I'm going to back you up. Okay. I'm going to push back on you. Why do you not want to take a stance on, on vegetarianism or veganism? Cause I always am asked about it. Mm. <laughs> Uh, um, I don't want to lose half of my listeners. <laughs> um, I think, well, I, no, it's, 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 it's a good question. I think we fall pretty in on, on pretty similar lines. So I'm also a meat, meat minimalist, but I do eat. Yeah. And, um, but, but the other aspect of this is that I'm not a big fan of milk products either. I think I, um, my main concern, my primary concern is with mammal products overall yeah. and, and mammalian welfare and. I have my own reasons for this. I don't want to prescribe this as things right. that, that other people should do. That is my own you know, take on this. I guess the reason I don't want to take a strong stance is that it's so different from people at different socioeconomic situations, from different social niches with different intuitions, with different pets. I mean, I don't think there's a one size fits all, but I do have a lot of respect for my friends who are vegetarian or vegan and, and, and strictly so. Um, it just doesn't chime with my personality to be strictly. So yeah. somebody offers me food, I eat it. Yeah. Um, no, well, thanks for pressing me. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> no, you're not getting off the hook. I've never, I've never <laughs> let off the hook. Um, but 
but I, I, I think the, the broad theme here is that now I, I laid my cards down, which is that I am a species. So I'm not a species in the sense that I think that only humans matter and nobody else matters, nor that only humans and dogs matter and nobody else matters. But I think that, I mean, anybody who's had a stomach worm will have to be a species to some extent and be like, you know, right. I value my own health more than this, this, this bloody worm. <laughs> and, and I think that even if you're one person who doesn't kill mosquitoes, you probably don't judge your friends as harshly if they slap a mosquito than if they would just slap. Um, a kid on the street, even if the kid wouldn't die from this love, and the mosquito right. does. And so, um, where do we draw lines? I personally would take a pretty gradualist um, approach. I don't think we really know. And I, I appreciate there was one quote in your book that I don't remember who it was from, but somebody said that it is just in, it is impossible for us to have a completely consistent approach to animals in general. Yeah. Right. And, That's um, probably how Herzog said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I did want to get back to the point about dogs not being special because they don't come to the owner just for food. At least the majority of them clearly have this relationship based on the neuroimaging data. There is something more than that. There is some kind of, if not love, then some kind of very strong bond, some affection. Um, I would be ready to call it love. I don't know if cows have it. Maybe they do, but not all animals. It. I mean, if we, for example, um, do you think a lizard would have a strong affectionate response to the smell of their owner? I don't. And we have, my wife has lizards. My um, parents have lizards and, and, and it's, I mean, it's great fun to, to play with the lizard, but a lizard doesn't really care. And I'm not saying this means that the lizard is a worse animal in some way. I'm saying that it's a different kind of relationship that human can have with a lizard than that they can have with a dog. Right. Right. Um, I think you know, there's likely to be a lot more commonalities in mammals, obviously, yes, because, yes. because of the shared physiology and the shared maternal bond that's necessary to be called a mammal. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, and then most mammals live in some kind of community. Um, yeah. You know, some are, some are loners, but you know, and even the ones who are loners, they uh, weren't loners when they were born as you, as you that is, that's, that's true. That's true. You know, if you accept our previous definition of emotions, that that they're the that the, it's kind of a state change that orients you or the animal to some particular suite of behaviors, then yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable to posit that that many mammals, maybe all, have some something like love. Mm. Uh, you know, I can tell you with cows, you know now having spent a fair bit of time around them and talked to other cattlemen, they do form bonds. They form bonds with each other and they form bonds with their humans and they differentiate them. Um, there have even been a few studies of, of cattle being able to recognize pictures mm. of herd mates from those who are not herd mates and people they know from people they don't know. Mm. And in large enough herds, you know, they form friendships. They, they have clicks. So there's, there is clearly something going yeah. on yeah. there. I guess I, I really want to emphasize that when I say that there may be something very special about dogs, I'm not saying it in a sense that we should play God and say that there is a hierarchy of species and dogs are at the apex. I'm saying it in a way that as another animal species, when we build relationships to other animals, it will be a different relationship to a dog than to a wolf for, right. for, for various reasons. And that doesn't mean that the dog is a better animal, but it means I will treat the dog differently. There will be a different relationship and that will probably end up being a more loving relationship. And, yeah. Um, 
unless an eating relationship. <laughs> Not that I would be eating the wolf as my, as right. my primary choice either. Although I do think dogs are promiscuous. Um, they're easy. They will love anyone. They're not particularly. Yes, yes. well, that's some part of the charm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, wonderful. Um, can I ask you a couple of quick questions that came up in the community when I ask if anybody, any of the listeners are, of are interested in asking something? One is about uh, brains of ants and other social insects. Do we know anything about why they are able to operate us uh, with this incredible hive intelligence while having such small brains? That is a great question, and I have no useful knowledge about <laughs> insects. I would uh, worry this would be the answer. Yeah, so I do not feel qualified to, to weigh in on that. <laughs> what about really rapid learning in short-lived species. So for the question was specifically about a rabbit that, that uh, mm. in the first year is able to be trained all sorts of tricks that humans are not, you know, the, the, the rabbit after in a one year can be potty trained, clearly not genetically programmed and not something that's easy to do with a, with a human <laughs> kid that's just, that is supposed to be much smarter. How, wh why are some animals so much faster at learning at a very, very fast pace and then they die out much faster? Yeah, interesting. I, I think, I mean, again, I'm speculating here that that probably the mechanisms the mechanisms of learning evolved independently of uh, the lifespan of that particular animal. So they probably represent basic learning mechanisms that exist in all all animals. Certainly, all all animals, even down to you know a single celled protozoa, has the mm. ability to learn something about the environment. Um, the mechanisms might be different. They might be simple, like chemotaxis, but certainly any animal with a brain can learn. That's, uh, you know, I would argue is one of the basic reasons yeah. the brain exists is to to adapt and learn about a dynamic environment. So the speed, the speed at which that happens is going to depend on, you know, probably two factors. One is how rapidly is that animal's environment changing. So if it's a rapidly changing environment, then the evolutionary pressure would be to evolve mechanisms that can learn rapidly. Mm. Whereas if it's not changing rapidly, then you can use much longer term learning mechanisms. But let's, let's flip the question around and ask, why do human children learn many things so slowly? Oh, well, I mean, I think it depends on what you're asking their, them to learn. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> what, what, what is the neural explanation for our very slow mechanisms? maturation and why would evolution have designed us that way well i think so okay so humans have uh both short-term very rapidly changing things they have to learn about so an infant comes hardwired you know uh, to suckle um that's not learned that's a hardwired response they know how to get milk right away the other things then they have to learn about immediately would would have to do with their changing environment um and that probably happens on you know minutes to hours to day time scale. And then there are other things that don't come online that they have to learn about until much later. And that would have to do with things like knowledge and language and social nuances. So the difference between humans and say a chicken or a rabbit is not that we can't learn things quickly because of course, of course we can. We have one shot learning. Food aversion is, is one shot learning. Um, 
and that <laughs> my dog is telling me that we're out of time pretty soon. <laughs> uh, so it's just that we have layers and layers of learning on top of the basic ones. Yeah. Okay, one last one, not necessarily about animals as such, uh, maybe harking more back to our conversation about self-food identity. Um, will we ever find seat of consciousness? And is the claustrum the seat of consciousness? This was the, uh, the Koch Creek, uh, yeah. the conductor of consciousness was supposed to be uh, the, right. the, the, the claustrum. Um, yeah, will we find one? Is there one? And is the claustrum well, I mean, okay, the, the brainstem, if anything, is probably the seat of consciousness because if, if your brainstem is not functioning, you're unconscious. Whereas mm -hmm. if you take out someone's claustrum, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, yeah, it's not the case. It does, I just checked it before in order to be able to ask this question. It does correlate with loss of consciousness, but it doesn't mean that you're unconscious for it. Right. And you know, I usually I usually stay away from discussions of consciousness, um, but I will point out that that consciousness it is also a continuum that that we each go through different levels of consciousness on a daily basis. So when you are asleep, you have a decreased level of consciousness. You're not unconscious, but you're not fully aware of your surroundings either. So it's kind of in in that middle yeah, state. Yeah. So would uh, that be kind of an integrated information theory view where you, you can almost give like a like an index on how much integrated information there is in the brain and that's the index of your level of consciousness? Uh, like a Tononi type of metric? Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, that's as good as any. I don't believe mm -hmm. there's a seat of consciousness. Um, there, you know, the, the, the brainstem is, is not the seat of consciousness, but it's like a gate. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you really have to start wrapping up. <laughs> it'll, it'll stop. <laughs> okay, great. Um, was there anything you would have wanted to talk about that we haven't? Oh, gosh, no, we covered so much. We covered a lot, yeah. yeah. Um, having studied the human brain, having studied various other brains, um, and clearly having a a lot of faith in there being a lot of similarities between our brains and others. Nevertheless, we are humans. We're not dogs. We're not cows. Um, what kind of animals are we? Humans obviously have kind of the curse of self-awareness. So dogs and cows and all the other animals we've talked about have a self-awareness, certainly in a, at least a physical sense. They know how their body exists uh they know where their body stops and their and the environment begins the human animal goes beyond that because as far as we can tell we're the only animals that can think of ourselves in the past present and future so these alternative versions that we that can do time shifting so that's a unique pretty unique skill set that of course results in the, the curse of the knowledge of our own mortality that you know we'll exist in the future and then we won't exist so that's the kind of animal we are. We are a time-shifting animal. Professor Gregory Burns, thank you very much. Thanks, Alari. Really appreciate it. And thank you for staying with us until the very end. Today I thought of ending the podcast a bit differently than usual, so instead of asking you to consider sharing on Humans Forwards, I will share something with you instead.
Has the conversation revealed I am perhaps regrettably not a dedicated vegan, but neither do I think that we can go on like this. So I'm always on the lookout for alternative sources of protein, iron, etc. How many of you might have heard about insect-based foods, crickets, etc. as a food for the future, and the emphasis here being on future and not present. And that's what I used to think too. But last week I tasted, for the first time, a genuinely delicious cricket-based mincemeat. It was really gourmet-level stuff in a local restaurant, and it had none of that, that weird insect taste that I used to dislike in these products. And, and I really, really hope that this trend will grow. So if you're someone like me who wants to move away from eating mammals and birds, but is still happy to consume animal products such as these, please do consider checking your local offering. The company I tried was called Yum Bug. You can check the link in the show notes. It's a London-based company shipping to households and restaurants UK-wide. Uh, but I'm sure that there are other pioneers in other countries that have been able to reach remarkable heights in terms of taste and quality. And by the way, this is no paid advertisement. I don't even know anyone at the company. You can consider it a, a tip from a friend. But that's uh, that's all for now. Thank you, as always, for listening. Take care. <laughs>